So Money Episode 619, Anna Homoyun, author of Social Media Wellness. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Ten years ago, when our guest Anna Homoyon would ask her students for their biggest distractions, they would list friends, sports, and maybe their pets. Now, the top distraction? Guess. The internet. Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. Welcome to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Now, as a parent, I'm not concerned yet about the internet for my kids. They're too little, but they're not going to be little for much longer. And so as a parent, how do we enforce healthy rules around the internet and social media? And how do we ourselves leverage the internet to enhance productivity as opposed to just turning it into just another big distraction? My guest today is Anna Homoyun, and she knows all. She's the author of the very new book, Social Media Wellness. And she arrives at this discussion with over 15 years of experience working with students, educators, and administrators. She's the founder of Green Ivy Education Consulting. It's a firm that specializes in promoting time management and wellness issues in the classroom and school communities. Here is Anna Homoyun. Anna Humayun, welcome to So Money. It's nice to connect. I guess we virtually connected years ago on Twitter unofficially, and now this is our official connection. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I know a little bit about you. You've been working in education for many years, specifically helping young people with organization and all those really great life skills. And you have a book out coming out actually just yesterday called Social Media Wellness. It seems like we can't really put those words in the same sentence, can we? But you have, because I mean, social media can drive you crazy. My book would be called Social Media Craziness. Your book is called Social Media Wellness. You really felt this was an important topic, especially for young people. It seems we can't escape our screens and especially social media. Tell us how you came to this topic and why you wanted to write a book about it, a whole book. Sure. Well, so I started working with teens in the heart of the Silicon Valley in 2001. And I started working with them on organization and time management and basically would help them transform their lives. So it wasn't just about grades or scores. In fact, that was the last thing we really worried about. We really focused on changing habits and helping students figure out what their own blueprint for success was. And based on that, what ended up happening was about five, six, seven years into working with students, I noticed that their distractions were changing. So when they first came to me, students in 2001, 2002, 2003 would say, you know, my siblings, my pet, food, the, you know, all of those would be their main distractions. But suddenly, um, more and more, they would find everything online was distractions. And as more and more schools had one-to-one laptop and tablet programs, so that's where each student has a laptop computer or a tablet screen that they use during the day for all of their work, students were finding that they were 
experiencing this ultimate paradox, right? The thing that they needed to use in order to complete their work was also their biggest distraction from getting work done. So here I am in the heart of the Silicon Valley. I'm visiting all of these schools around the country that are implementing one-to-one tablet or computer programs with teenagers whose brains aren't fully developed, their prefrontal cortex around self-regulation isn't there yet, and they're really struggling, but they want to do well. So I started coming up with these strategies that now ended up in this book about how can we change the conversation around social media? Because as we adults know, social media isn't good or bad. It's a mode of communication. It can make us crazy, as you say, but there are so many benefits that we can all say, like I'm sure you've, we've digitally met over Twitter or um, there are all sorts of things that are positive about it. But at the same point, if we don't give kids a framework to navigate their online world, it can be really overwhelming for adults as well as kids. And the one thing I would say is why this book is so important is because so many adults never had social media to deal with when they were younger. So unlike other typical teen issues, this is one where parents and educators really need a translator to help them understand how to navigate and how to help teens and tweens um, make better choices and, and develop their own intrinsic motivation. Is part of the solution or part of the strategy to say as parents, you're just not going to get to go on social media for a while? Is there a level and age at which it becomes more appropriate and le- or less appropriate? Um, do you have cutoffs? Like maybe um, we could talk about that because I know some parents, their rule is just it's not happening. <laughs> there, and that's the strategy. What do you say to that? How do you navigate? Well, I think there's a couple things. So it really depends on the age of your child, right? So when you have a middle schooler um, that's in maybe fifth or sixth grade, uh, it is really appropriate to set self-regulation to, um, structure because a lot of times they can't self-regulate. But as they get older, um, you will find that some of the socialization of school Um, or post after school that used to take place when people would call your house now takes place online. Not only that, but some of the planning, especially for high school students, whether that's for like weekend events, whether that's actually for school projects happens online. So this whole idea of you can just never go online doesn't really seem to be that effective. And long-term, what we want to do is help kids build intrinsic motivation. So I talk about three important um, ways to do that in the framework for the book, and it's healthy socialization, um, effective self-regulation, and overall safety. So you were talking really about effective self-regulation. And what we find is if you just tell kids to not go on something and they really want to go on something, they're just going to go underground, right? And that is actually counterproductive because kids really need to be able to go to adults to seek out help when things don't go as planned or when they need advice about something. But if they're hiding, you know, it doesn't give them the opportunity to do so. So while I think like at younger ages, that might be appropriate, it really depends on sort of what's going on in your child's age group, social group, how is socialization happening, particularly among high school students, and how can you build in time for digital detox without 
you know, telling them what to do all the time. And at the same time, giving them tools to self-regulate or to build intrinsic motivation for themselves. So to your point, there are some ways where it is important for parents. Like, so a lot of the parents that I know, they will take away devices at night or kids will, and it just becomes part of the habit. Or there is a designated time every week or every day for an hour or two that everyone's offline. So those are things that can work. But again, everything is really um, flexible in the book based on what are the needs of your family? Because what works for one family might not work for another. What is a sign that your child is on social media, quote unquote, too much? When And how can you tell? Sure. Well, one of the things that's important to know is what works for one child is not appropriate for another. And around this idea of healthy socialization, I often talk about this helping kids identify what is energizing about their online experiences and what is draining. So an early example I give in the book is about a girl who was online every day in her room. She was in the sixth grade on this um, site that was really, um, kids were posting things to her profile. They were pretty mean. Her parents didn't know about it. And that was a really draining experience. So she wasn't sleeping. She was irritable and, but, but her parents thought she was just doing her homework in her room. So a lot of the signs are when things are draining, you tend to get overwhelmed. You tend to feel irritable. Your mood tends to be affected. So I help, I, I often tell parents, look at for those signs and then also look for what happens when a kid gets their phone or the Wi-Fi or gaming device taken away from them. How do they react? And if they're constantly in a bad mood until they get it back, then that's a sign that maybe there's an imbalance. Mm. Everything seems to be generational though, right? When we were growing up, video games were the thing that my parents literally just took away from me because <laughs> I got a little too, went down that rabbit hole, got a little too dark for me one what summer. What did I mean, so it, it wasn't even like anything serious. It was like Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt because honestly, my parents wouldn't even buy the other game. I just got the free ones that came with Nintendo. Our, our parents sound pretty similar, although yeah, my we're both Iranian. Yeah, <laughs> my parents didn't even buy Nintendo. We went and visited somebody's house, and I was like hooked to, on Super Mario Brothers for about two weeks. Well, you know, and like the what happened with the sign for my mom that she was like, this is it. I'm, I'm tossing the Nintendo was, um, the joystick or I guess like the, you know, whatever that thing is called, the, the mm-hmm. control, you know, f- when you're playing Mario brothers, it's like you, you're constantly, your thumb is on this one button and you're pressing and you're pressing, and you're pressing to the point where I would have a reflex. Like it would like my thumb would like sometimes <laughs> just start like bouncing or I would, my shoulder would twitch at the dinner table and she put it together and she was like, this has to go. And so, and maybe a generation before that, it was something else. I definitely think that the internet and screens is a whole other level and more intense in many ways. But, uh, have you looked at maybe how generations past have dealt with innovation and the, our obsession with them and how to not make it such a distraction? I'm sure when TV first came out, it was like, (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, there was this whole thing about, um, phones being like, you know, ruining a generation, but then people made this very, the same counter argument you're making is that every generation has something. The unique thing about social media and online and internet is that it's 
being brought into the classroom because kids are using it as part of their learning at very many, at many schools. And also it's part of our daily life, right? So pay phones don't really exist in the way they did before. So for safety, you know, issues or even convenience issues, many parents are getting their kids phones. So we talk about that a little bit. Um, and then how that sort of changed the landscape, right? You, if you are stuck somewhere, there's no, there's not going to be a payphone around like there was 20 years ago. Um, but at the same point, that makes it even more imperative for us to find practical solutions that aren't just take it all away. Because it's not actually that practical to tell somebody just throw away your computer or just throw away your tablet that you need to turn in your homework with or complete an assignment with. So what we do is find effective ways for them to self-regulate or navigate within the world. Um, and one of those, like one of the tips that I have is, you know, my students will use dual screens and adults do this all the time too, right? You have a screen that you do all your work on and like you're signed out of all social media and then you have your social screen. And so you're really compartmentalizing and monotasking. Another thing I usually tell kids and adults is that, you know, pick the times where you don't want that digital creep to come in. So for example, I go to the park and I walk my dogs every day. And when I do, I don't go on my phone or any, any media because it gives me a natural time where I'm offline. So those are the kind of things we're trying to implement with kids, knowing that this generation is different because you didn't need Super Mario Brothers to complete your homework, right? So that becomes a paradox. That's arguable. No, <laughs> totally. <laughs> my eight-year-old self might have disagreed. but Absolutely. Anyway. I understand. So now um, let's talk about money because uh, we have to. It's the show's sure, called I So Money. It. Yeah. Okay. And I'm curious because um, maybe we have some parallel experiences given that our, were your parents immigrants? Absolutely. Yes. From Iran. And you grew up, I grew up on the East Coast. You grew up, was it, were you all West Coast based or did you move there? So um, I moved there when I was 12 from Connecticut. So I got best, oh, the best of you got a, you bought bi-coastal. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so well, tell us first, what is your money mantra? Do you have a financial philosophy that might even be rooted from your upbringing? Um, I, my money mantra is really focused on saving first. I would say I've always been, I wouldn't say always, that is not correct. Um, I would say ever since I started my own business when I was 21, um, I really, developed it like a no debt philosophy. And that was just the philosophy I've really run. I really ran my life with and it's worked for me. But I will say that when I was like 14, I got my first job. It was like paying, it was paid probably five twenty five an hour working in an antique shop that ironically is just up the street from where my office is today. Um, and I worked retail throughout high school and college in clothing stores and all this stuff. And I spent so much of that money. I just wish like, now that I look back, I'm like, Oh my gosh, if only you'd put 20% in a savings account or in a brokerage account, like, but right. Um, There's a joke I, that like, you know, you work at club Monaco for the discount. That's basically right. what <laughs> you're for not working. Was, and for me, it was J crew, quite frankly. So, um, totally in college, that's what I did. But what I ended up realizing, one of the best things I did, and I often tell people, is that 
when I was 23 and I just started the business, I asked somebody that I admired who was older, who was a CFO at a company, who was a client of mine. I, I worked with her kids very early on. I said, who would you recommend as an accountant? And she recommended this accountant who's still my accountant today. And I remember my very first meeting with him and he said, you know, there are probably cheaper options for, you know, having an accountant. You're just starting your business. But I said, I really liked him and I thought he gave really good advice. Um, and I said, nope, I really like you. So can we work together? And he's the person that started me on like my retirement account from day one, like saving the maximum from day one and all of those things. So sometimes it, it just takes the right mentor at the right time that you'll listen to. Cause he said, you know, he basically was like, I was like, oh, I'm having a really great year. He's like, you have not saved zero anything for retirement. I was like 24 at the time. I'm like, who's thinking about retirement? But now I'm like, oh, these are just things that you put in in place early. They become second nature. And I think we don't do that enough because we don't have money mentors that tell us these things. That's why I love your show so much, quite frankly, because you give really practical advice. Truly, like it's really subtle intel. Yeah. It's like subtle intervention, you know, yes, <laughs> like, you may not realize you need this advice. You're just listening for the fun and the giggles, but then you're like, oh, wait, I should really have an IRA as it turns out. But you said something interesting, which earlier, which was that you started a business at 21. That's unique. That's a, that is that something that you always knew you wanted to do or did you have a family that really um, so, pushed yeah. for that? It's a great story, actually, that, that takes me all the way back to being six in um, rural Connecticut. And my grandma had come to visit from Iran. My grandma is like a master knitter. Like she does it like she knits everything. And it was she would just, you know, do it because like rural Connecticut is kind of boring for your for your grandma who's like used to living in the city. So she was like knitting a storm up a storm. And I was like, Grandma you know, you're making like three or four hats a day. Like I could stand at the end of the, the driveway and sell them for this amount. And then we'd make this amount. And my dad was like, we're never going to have to worry about you. Like, this is an entrepreneurial brain. I was like putting grandma to work, um, knitting hats. But um, I, so I always had like this idea that I wanted to start a business, but I really didn't um, think that it would be a reality. And then shortly after I graduated from college, I was working for an investment bank. Um, and about two weeks before 9-11, my appendix burst and I was taking the train into the World Trade Center every day up until that time. And my appendix burst, I took myself to the hospital at 4 a.m. in New York City, St. Vincent's Hospital. And my parents, my mom flew out um, after I had the emergency surgery. And then I flew back to California, recovered. And then three months later, um, I was laid off. Um, you know, 2001, economy tanked. But they had given me a severance package. And I really sat there. I was like, okay, all of these crazy things have happened within four months of graduating from college. And I just said, I want to do what I love doing, which is working with kids. So I used the severance package essentially to just start the business. And that was, you know, 16 years ago. And we, I still, I still run the business today. Wow. Um, you know, we have quite a few employees. Our office is in this very cute downtown in the heart of the Silicon Valley. Um, and I travel to schools all around the world. Um, I've written, this is my social media wellness is my third book. But my work is all about helping teens design and young adults 
design their own blueprint for success. And I say it really comes out of what I did for myself and, and to your, and your work yourself as well is very similar. You know, you, you created your own blueprint for success with the work that you do around money and um, teaching money and financial literacy. Thanks to getting laid off as well. (laughs) See, this is what I also tell people. Like I remember writing a holiday card to a friend of mine from college and she was like, Oh, how are things doing? And by the way, this is 2001. So I was writing her actual card and I remember writing, I was like, yeah, so I had the appendix out and then you know, barely missed nine eleven, and then I got laid off. Things are going great, you know. I mean, <laughs> things are really, and I, you know, I'm working with kids, and you know, if you told me sixteen years ago I was going to still be doing this today and love my job every day, I wouldn't really know that that was true. But things have certainly evolved, right? When I first started out, I was working only directly with students, and then I wrote um, my first book. Um, that crumple paper was due last week. And then my second book, and then now social media wellness. So because of those, I've now traveled all over the world, visiting students, parents, um, consulting with schools. So it's evolved, right? It, it isn't what it was in 2002, 2003, but um, the heart of it is the same. And it's based on what I love doing. And, and so that's important to me. And, and that's what I really help teens and young adults start figuring out. And um a great story for me is one of my students. I just heard from his uh, father a couple days ago. I, I helped him with all these organization and time management things. And within three weeks, he came back. He was an athlete. So I really had his buy-in that he wanted to get more sleep and getting more, more organized would help him get more sleep. And he came back in and he said, um, you know, I'm getting an hour and a half extra sleep per night this is amazing. And then, you know, I just, his father This is now 10 years later. He was my student 10 years ago. He's now getting a PhD in physical therapy. He was really interested in kinesiology as a high school student. And one of the things I say is around building your own blueprint for success, whether that's, you know, building your own business or going and finding your own careers. A lot of times kids know what they want to do earlier on than we give them credit for. They don't, they just don't have the organization, the time management, and a lot of times the financial literacy skills to make that a reality. Like if I didn't really get that advice early on about um, saving, living below my means, um, always having a cushion, you know, there's always times that things come up where I haven't been stressed about it. Whereas other people have. Right. So I think those are important yeah. things. That's a really, really optimistic observation. And and I like it because I, I do think that there's whenever we find ourselves in life later in life, in our 40s and 50s, and we're like, oh, you know, at the end of the I always wanted to be a journalist or I always wanted to be a writer because I remember being a kid and this. So You think that's true. You think that actually, even though the prefrontal cortex hasn't maybe fully evolved, we're not super mature at 12, at 10, but there are signs that we're getting very close to identifying what it is that makes us fulfilled and happy in all of life. I think that's true for me. I think I always loved communicating and sharing and helping and writing. And so maybe I didn't know I wanted to do exactly what I'm doing, but I was getting very warm. Right. And, and I always ask kids, what are the, the skills that you like or what are the qualities that you like in, in, in the things that you do, whether those are activities? 
um, or other things. And, and it was, it's interesting because I do think some of the happiest adults, what they love doing starts out of something they enjoyed doing as a child. Exactly what you're saying. It might not, you might have not done financial literacy as a seven year old, but you liked talking, you liked helping people, you liked working with others, you liked communicating. And all of those are qualities that you see in your job today. All right, let's talk about a failure. Uh, We talk about financial failure on this show, and it doesn't have to be, you know, my house got. Put on, put in foreclosure, or I de- declared bankruptcy, but something that was a a setback or a hard lesson learned when it came to your could be your financial life, could be your career life. Indulge us, because we all love to hear about other people's <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> Makes us feel better about our own. Share us, share us your failure. Well, I really have to say, so this book was the toughest, one of the toughest things I've ever done, and I will tell you why. I rewrote it from scratch. So when I got the original deal for this book, and and my first book took eight months, my second book took 10 months. This book, I I like to think that some of it was because I had to go online to do research. And then I would go into the vortex of like, oh, I need to read one more article online. But it really wasn't that. I mean, the first draft was terrible, I thought. And I made the conscious decision, are you going... And it was pretty much a failure, but it was also two years worth of work. And I was like, I don't want this to be out there. So I rewrote it from scratch, which was really hard. And I'm a kind of person that likes to write a list, check it off, done, move on to the next. And I remember in 2015, 2016, there were times that I had to be like, get really um, philosophical and spiritual about this book. Somewhere along the line, and this is what happened, I had surgery in 2015. I'm totally fine, but it set me back another six weeks. And I had all these speaking engagements lined up for the book that was supposed to come out that didn't come out. (laughs) And I ended up going to them um, because I called the schools. I was like, well, my book hasn't come out, but do you still want me to come? Like, I can talk about what I'm going to talk about in the book. But what it ended up doing is it totally reframed this new book right? Um, that, that I'm really happy with because I think it gives a foundation for people. And it came up with my argument that's pretty timeless around how to build strategy around social media. But I will tell you, 2014, 2015 were a sludge when I realized I had to completely start over. Um, so that would be my big, like, it, when I think about my biggest, like, failure, it would be finding out, you know, this is going to have to start over from scratch. But so glad that you did, right? I mean, because now you have something that is timeless and much more, I think, in tune with and in touch with what the reality is. You went in the trenches. You didn't just go online. You like actually went and spoke to kids and got some great feedback and were able to sort of test drive the idea, you know, get some social proof. So that has to happen sometimes. And uh, writing a book is a marathon. And whether it takes you six months or six years, it it always feels like it's never going to end. It's it's a very... But I think the more time you take, the better because uh, it's, it's one of those things where once that book is done and published, you can't go back and edit it. And it's got your name on it and you want to be proud. So um, probably... Well, and yeah. And one thing to think about is, right... 
So Snapchat wasn't really, when I got this book contract, Snapchat really wasn't a thing. Musically, a lot of the things that we, that kids and teens and tweens are on today either didn't exist or weren't um, as popular. And so the whole landscape has changed in a way that, that you are able to come up with some foundational ideas. But I agree with you. You've written several books as well. So, you know, it, it is, as you said, a marathon. And sometimes you're like, this is done, right? And then you're like, it's actually not done. <laughs> you <laughs> totally have to go awesome. through the terrible draft before you get to the final draft. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. Um, all right. Anna, let's do some so many fill in the blanks. All right. This is when I start off a sentence and you finish it really fast. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million billion dollars, the first thing I would do is Oh, segmented out like taxes, savings, spending, like truly create buckets. And then I really would. Yeah. Like, I'm totally because like then, that person. Then you really know how much is left, right? Yeah. And then I'm like totally, it's probably the immigrant philosophy in me, like my dad, you know, like he'd be like, mm, yeah, just take a moment. It's not really a hundred million. Figure out what you have, you know, figure out where you would, you would, where you'd get. And I would actually give a lot of it. Um, probably, um, away. And I'd also, uh, still do what I'm doing. I really like my job. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to give it away because you don't need a hundred million. You, you could do really well with 50. Um, <laughs> still, still be very happy. All right. One thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. Oh, wash and fold laundry for sure. Because I live in the city. Right. And so, um, that might seem a, um, but I live, I live, and I live in a place that doesn't have laundry in the, in the, in the unit. It's just like older city apartments in San Francisco and, uh, wash and fold has been a godsend. I, I would hear say. you. It saves me the, so much time. I think the fold part is my favorite than the wash. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. No, I hate folding clothes. <laughs> Your biggest splurge, my biggest splurge. I am. I am insistent upon this. I don't care. I am. It's my guilt-free splurge. Hmm. I would say I'm trying to think what I, I, I splurge on travel. Like I think that I travel very comfortably because, um, it makes my life that much easier and I am happy to, you know, spend money on my travel experiences. That's what I would say about First class hotels, things like um, that, even or even just like economy, like anything that would make things easier. Like um, you know, sometimes you pay extra to pre-board or something. If I know that it's going to be a really full flight, maybe I'll do that. Or just like little things that I think that would make my life easier and happier. Um, yeah, I totally have no issues with with. Uh, with upgrading or, um, travel. Cause I do travel a lot as well, or I'll stay in a nicer hotel. Um, and I'm happy to do that. That's a totally no guilt splurge. You know, in Gretchen Rubin's book, um, the pursuit of happiness, that's one of the conclusions, which is that if there's something that you do a lot of, like if you work from home and you're in your office at home, um, a, a little bit of happiness into your life could mean, 
like buying a like a, a candle that is like a huge splurge, like a $35, $50 candle, but you love it and it's it fills up the room and it makes you more interested and excited to be at home writing, then it is a wonderful investment. And I think for you and others who travel a lot, anything that can create a better experience, even if it means paying a little bit more to get the extra leg room or buying the, you know, <laughs> the stuff at, like buying your favorite pack of gum at the airport or candy that's like 10x because it's at the airport, but whatever. It's going to get you through boarding and the flight. Like those little things can actually lead to higher uh, level of happiness. So I'm all for those tiny splurges. Okay. Uh, One thing I wish I had learned about money growing up. You seem to have had a pretty good introduction to money as a child, but is there something that you wish you had learned more about? I think I wish I had learned more about investing um, early. Although I think I, you know, just in general, like the whole concept of saving and saving up and saving even for not just for retirement, but like for bigger things, I wish I had learned earlier. And I don't think that my parents were, um, they didn't teach me that. I just think, you know, sometimes teenagers just don't listen, right? Your parents can say something. This is why I think money mentors are so important, right? And I say this in my own work, right? Parents can say something and I can say the same thing. And parents don't know what they're talking about. And I sound like kids will tell me I'm super brilliant, but I I like literally said word for word what their parents said. And so that's why I wish I had learned a little bit more about, you know, different buckets. Okay. You can spend, but spend one third of it and then save us a third of it and just don't worry about it or automate. Um, And I don't know that automating was like as easy as it is today. Maybe that's um, another thing. I don't know. You would, no, you'd be more of an expert on that. Yeah, I still remember as a child, like going to the bank with my parents, you know, my mother going to the store to pay off her credit card bill, although she probably could have mailed it in. But yeah, there was no going online to pay it off. But you bring up something really interesting, which is um, I do wonder if a good hack for parents to get their kids to really appreciate money concepts at an early age is to have someone else tell them about it. <laughs> Not you oh, I, and mom. No, and I agree. Right? I agree. I think yeah, so too. Yeah. My, my parents were actually, they were the great combination or they are the great combination. And my dad is like a super saver, like is worried about every rainy day that hasn't happened ever. And then my mom is one of those people who's like, um, splurge on experiences. Like she will, she's like, I'm not concerned about spending $20 if it makes my life that much easier. And even when she was a, you know, both my parents were graduate students they were like that and that we never, you know, I never had this strain feeling of strain around money, even when they didn't have a lot of money. So that, that combination was actually pretty good, but I'm just saying, I I probably just didn't listen to them because I wasn't going to listen to my parents, right? Not because they weren't giving great advice. Um, and then also I think parents don't really talk about how much money they make or how much money, you know, taxes are all these different things. Cause there's like certain taboos in general about talking about money in our society in general. And I think we need to do maybe a little bit more of that, not to, not to scare kids, but also to make them aware. Right. Um, did, I, did, I, I just think, well, in my family, I think it's because we were Iranian, like money was relatively, 
um, a fluent topic in our household. You know, we didn't, we just talked about it a lot. We weren't afraid of it. I think, um, a, the next door neighbor dinner table would have been a much different conversation. Was that, did you find that is to be the same in your upbringing as well? That money was not necessarily as taboo as some other, in, in, as it might have been in some other households. You know, it wasn't taboo in my household, but I don't know that my parents talked a ton about it. Um, and only because they, again, my mom has a con- had the attitude that she wasn't going to worry about something that made her life easier. And that was just the way she was or is. She still is this way. I mean, she has a beautiful attitude around money, um, and yet she saves and all of those things. But um so I don't know. I, I, I do agree. We probably talked about it more than uh, the average family next door, for sure. What do you think you talked about the most around your dinner table? I'm curious. My, I think we were very quick to talk about like how much things cost with other people that like, so obviously amongst ourselves, but even when we had people over, we were out, you know, my parents and their co friend and their friends who were also Iranian, you know, they would talk about um, how much things cost. Uh, real estate was a big topic in my household. Oh yeah. I we think, talked about real estate. Oh yeah. Oh, Iranians Arnish, love real estate. We used to go to Sunday open houses, like it was like a thing to do. Like I have been to thousands of open houses with my mother. Like I was, I can walk into a house and tell the layout right away. Now. Yes. Like, it's, it's I, like- I, I can turn on the real estate agent shtick in a, in a heartbeat. Like I, I can, I mean, I actually do think that in an alternate universe or in an all, in a past life, I was a real estate agent for Colwell Banker. And I do think that um, it may still be in my future. I think that when I retire, I will be bored and may want to go get that real estate license once and for all and sell some condos in Florida. You didn't even know that that's what my mom did. She retired and she became a real there estate agent. See? Because, I mean, I know the language. I know. I mean, it's just, and I love it. I'm on real estate websites like yeah like two minutes ago i'm like i'm actually on there right now i'm multitasking no i'm kidding right um, no but, but you, you i do think you're right we talked about real estate and housing and like all of these things and growing up it's so part of like what we did that i was like oh people don't talk about this like all the time they don't go like sunday afternoon isn't open house time um so yeah i do remember a story but we also talked about salaries and i remember my mom was going in to ask for a raise at work. And my dad was the one who was insisting upon it and it was giving her the script and everything. And she went in and she asked for a raise and they said, um, no. And in fact, we're going to fire you now. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm so sorry to hear that. I was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it was, she hated the job. So it was probably a good thing. But ever since then, she's, she's been fearful of like, she never would. My dad was always the one who was like, ask for a raise, ask for a raise. And sometimes she would listen to that and like roll her eyes because she's like, well, it happened to me. It didn't work out for me. But I think it was also the 80s and discrimination. And, you know, it was more rampant against women. And yeah, you could if you were a woman and you walked in and asked for a raise from your male boss in 1987, he may not like that very much. It's already proven that when women ask for raises, um, the same script as a man, the women are perceived to be less likable and um, as a result of just asking for what they're worth. So uh, it's really, so, but we talked about a lot of that. I remember those stories and um, fortunately it didn't deter me from 
asking for more <laughs> in my career. <laughs> Didn't always get it, but I remember my dad was very much always the advocate for, for us in doing that. So for better or worse, literally. Uh, all right. So that was a tangent, but no, no, no. And it's really important. I, we never actually talked about salaries in, 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 in our house, I have to say, but I do, but, but what my dad did do a really good job of is, you know, helping us believe in whatever blueprint we wanted to create for ourselves. Like he is such a supporter. Didn't even matter what it is. My sister is a professor at Santa Clara university teaching ethnic studies. And he was just like, go for it. That's just like, literally like how to figure go out how it. it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Oh, so cute. Alrighty. And last but not least, I'm Anna Homoyun. I'm so money because. I love being able to design my own blueprint and be able to be very comfortable in doing so. I love it. Congratulations on your book. And thank you for writing about this topic. I think uh, every parent, every educator, um, every person, because really at the end of the day, this is going to teach readers themselves how to also keep it balanced, right? When it comes to social media and all the distraction that's out there. Absolutely. It's really all about how we can all, parents, educators, and children have this conversation around how to make better habits online and in real life. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Anna for stopping by. You can learn more about Anna by visiting AnnaHomayun.com. That's A-N-A-H-O-M-A-Y-O-U-N.com. And she's also on Twitter at AnnaHomayun. Her book is called Social Media Wellness. If you missed any of this, just hop over to somoneypodcast.com. We've got the transcript, the audio. You can also leave me a question for our Friday Ask Farnoosh episodes. Just click on Ask Farnoosh at the top right and either voice in a question or type it in. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money.